The current series we're in uh, is kind of a, a break. Pastor Aaron actually uh, is taking about five weeks out of preaching and teaching regularly. He's not on vacation. He's still around and working during the week, but he's not preparing each week to pre preach in the pulpit. And instead, we've brought in a few guest preachers. Um, this next week, we'll have Pastor Justin Schaefer will be here. Um, for those of y'all that know Pastor Justin, you're excited. He used to, to be one of the pastors on staff here before going to Georgia to plant a church. So he's going to be coming and sharing an update with us on all the progress towards his church plant, which will be coming in January, I believe. Um, after that, we're going to have Pastor Wayne Taylor from Calvary Chapel down the road coming in to preach with us. Um, so we'll have a couple of exciting guest speakers coming up. And then today, I actually have the pleasure of getting to join you guys and to open up God's Word. And... Um, Pastor Aaron, as we were talking about today's message, he encouraged me to take some time and share my testimony because while I've been here for about eight or nine years now at this church and I've served with the community group ministry for the bulk of that period, I wasn't actually installed as an elder until this past fall and I wasn't brought on staff until January. So I know the community group leaders really well, but there's still a lot of you from the church that I don't know much at all. And so he encouraged me to share my testimony and I don't really have time for that today, but I thought... I can at least give you a little bit of glimpse into kind of the life that y'all might not know. Um, and so I thought I would do that by sharing with y'all. There's a little known secret, but I and my wife, I've joked about for some time writing a book because apparently over the years, I've had a very different look and have kind of uh, um, allowed my wife to, to experience what it would be like to live with very different men. And so there's a book I want to write called How to Give Your Wife All the Men She Ever Wanted, A Simple Man's Guide to Changing Your Looks. It would start with the Zoolander. Uh, this was post-college. My mom entered me in a modeling contest without telling me about it. Uh, I came back from a summer camp experience and uh, got a phone call that was quite a surprise. They said, hey, you're, a, you're a, one of the finalists. I said, for what? I haven't entered anything. Um, so next to the Zoolander, you get the Texan. That didn't last very long. There's Dallas. Um, clean cut was kind of how I was up until about college. Uh, the Alaskan, this important era of my life. Uh, the Rocker. In Dallas, I, I would have gotten beat up or, or all sorts of stuff. Um, I was walking down the streets of Seattle. This was actually for a work party. I had a Guitar Hero guitar on my back, and I'm walking through the streets. No one even flinched. This is a weird city we live in. Um, you also have The Bold Mistake. Yeah, we'll... Not saying anything about that. The River Guide. Um, if anybody ever wants to go river rafting, this, this summer is terrible for it. But next summer, if the waters are back up, there's a Christian family that owns the rafting company in Index. And so I guide with them, and it's a blast to get out on the river there. Um, and then lastly, uh, the, the, the most unique one, the Son of God. Um, <laughs> For a little context, I happened to have full hair and beard when the Son of God movie came out, and I was working at the central offices for Mars Hill, and one, somebody made this poster and put them everywhere. Well, we were promoting the movie at the time, so most of the people didn't even realize that was me that had been superimposed in the pictures until like weeks after the posters had been up. So there you go. Um, Obviously, those are just a comical look at certain eras of my life. If you want to know the real stories behind those, you'll have to invite my wife and I over for dinner, and we'd love to get to know you more. Um, there's a second book that I actually want to write. This one's a little more serious. Uh, I think it would be a fun approach to theology, and it's called It Could All Taste Like Chicken, A Theology of Worship from the Perspective of Taste Buds. And here's the idea behind this, this book. 
God could have given us one big taste bud and everything we eat would taste like bland, boiled, unseasoned chicken. Really boring, just straightforward. And, and truthfully, food is a very functional thing, right? We need food for our bodies to recover and to have energy and to muscles and cellular, all the whatever bodies do. So food is necessary and God could have just made it taste like chicken. But he gave us over 10,000 taste buds and a wealth of flavors and food so that we could experience these different things. And it can be a real joy when we sit down at the table. Now, we can certainly err to where food becomes a God and we worship food and it rules over us and we eat too much and we, we're trying to try every flavor at every meal. And, and that's a bad thing. Gluttony's not good. But when we sit down and with gratitude, we say, wow, Lord, this could be totally utilitarian, but you and your grace have given us flavors and taste buds and, and a chance to enjoy all of these things sitting down to a meal can actually be a very worshipful response. Um, now, you might be thinking, why in the world would he come up with these two random crazy book titles? How does that tie into the sermon? Um, and it actually does. So give me a chance to tie these things together. Um, but I kind of wanted to give you, with the first book, just a little bit of a glimpse of some of my life, since many of you don't know me at all. Um, but really, these do tee up the sermon, and, and as I told you earlier, this sermon is, or the sermon series is kind of about mission and ministry, and so as I think about mission and ministry, I've had this long-running dialogue with community group leaders where they're sharing some of the, maybe, the challenges they're facing in the group, and often what I find is that it's because their group is only operating in a very narrow spectrum. It's like they're using their one taste bud and community groups starting to taste like chicken. It's just bland. It's the same all the time. And as I talk to them, I start to unpack things. I, I said, what do you, you know, there's a whole broad spectrum of how you can engage with one another, how you can engage with God's word, how you can engage in prayer. Like there's so much variety. What do you do to change it up? And like, well, well, we don't. It's like we meet every week for two hours and we do A, then B, then C, then D. And and, and they realize it just starts to get bland. And so my challenge is, man, there's a variety of ways to experience things. Let's season things up a little bit. And so today I want to talk about this idea, and uh, really it's going to come from Ephesians 4, and this idea that Ephesians 4 gives us of growing in the fullness of Christ. And so a phrase that I would kind of say as a, a kind of a foundation statement for the sermon, the work of the ministry is about seeing people reconciled to God and growing in the fullness of Christ. So if we're in a series about mission and ministry, I would say the work of the ministry is seeing people reconciled to God and growing in the fullness of Christ. So let me open with a foundational text uh, from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open it and read and maybe to highlight a few key phrases. If you don't, we'll have it on the screens. But Ephesians 4, the verse 11 and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And a quick timeout, I want to remind y'all, the saints is not some super class of Christians. The saints means all of those who proclaim Jesus as Lord and are walking as Christians. Saints is all Christians. So he gave the evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints, all of us, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless 
the reading of his word. And let me pray and open us up. Lord, we thank you that we have the chance to come together and to open your word and to learn about you. And I pray that as we study things today, you would help us to think creatively about the incredibly diverse number of ways you have given us that we can engage with you and with one another. I pray that you would expand our understanding of what the work of the ministry is and what it means to grow in the fullness of Christ. And I pray that uh, we would have our hearts ready so that you could work in the deep places of our heart to transform us so that we would look more and more like you. May it all be for your glory. Amen. Um, for those of y'all that have been here for a while, uh, if you have ever come to any of the discipleship trainings or if you've heard me uh, preach before, you've heard me share this Ephesians verse. And you, you might even be thinking, my gosh, Travis, there's a whole Bible with tons of verses. How do you keep coming back to the same passage every single time? And, and if that's what you're thinking, then, then that's great because if you've got it nailed already, you should have no problem with this first question. Question I would propose to you is, what is your philosophy of ministry? Um, honestly, that question was asked to me a few years ago, and I kind of took pause. I'm like, I don't know. I've never thought about it. I thought, here, I've been a believer for years, and I've never thought about what my philosophy of ministry is. Um, I would ask you, what is your philosophy of ministry? And, and some of you might immediately respond and say, well, I'm not called into ministry, like I'm not going to be a vocational minister or I'm not going to be a missionary in some other country. And you might be thinking that, that missions and ministry is called for a special class of Christians who, who are like hired to go do the work of the ministry. And that's completely false. If we look back at the verses in Ephesians we just read, it says that the shepherds and the teachers are there to equip the saints, all Christians, for the work of the ministry. We are all called into the work of the ministry. It's not for some special class of Christians. It's for all of us. Um, I'm blessed in this season that I'm getting to work on staff here as a pastor at the church. Uh, but the bulk of my professional career, my adult life, has been in financial services and in international marketing. And, and those were incredible ministry fields where I had engagement with lots of people who didn't know Jesus and a chance to share the gospel. That was a rich ministry field. I was just as much in the ministry then as I am now, and that's the case for all of us who claim to be Christians. So what are you thinking about your philosophy of ministry? I would propose that when we think about ministry, our philosophy of ministry and the way we view how we live life and live things out should look a lot like the life of Jesus, or said another way, how we live our lives and how we live out our call to ministry should look like the way Jesus lived his life and lived out his call to ministry. Now, I just kind of wanted to make sure nobody missed the point today uh, for the kids' ministry the other week to make sure they paid attention. I brought in tons of candy to throw out at the end. Um, I'm not going to throw out candy. I don't have enough for everybody, but I'm going to front load it with the main point. I want to make sure no one misses this. So here's the, the, some of the main ideas. John 10.10 says, Jesus came that we would have life and have it abundantly. As we think about abundant life, think of that as full flavored. You're not sitting down at the table for bland chicken. You're sitting down for a full flavored, exciting meal. Jesus didn't give us a bland life. He came for us to have an abundant life. If you think that your life, your spiritual walk, how you go about the work of, of ministry, if it's, if it's bland, it's probably because you're experiencing it one dimensionally. You're not experiencing the breadth and the, the, the depth and the, the full range of things that Christ has called us for. As we look at the life of Jesus, which we're going to do today on just some really broad, sweeping strokes, my hope is you'll see that the way he engaged ministry and life and people was incredibly diverse and active and exciting. 
So today we're going to look through the life of Christ and some of those diverse aspects of his ministry. Now, a few disclaimers. Um, these points I'm going to share are not conclusive points. There's no way I'm going to impact the totality of who Jesus was in a single sermon. But I want to at least get you thinking about this idea of the diversity of his ministry. Um, I also, for a lot of these ideas I'm going to bring up, I'm not going to have the time to unpack the ideas themselves in full. But my hope is you'll be stirred with these and you'll take these back and in your own time of study, you'll start to unpack these ideas a little further. Now, for those of you who are Christians that are here today, I want you to consider where your life does look like the life and ministry of Jesus. He's probably gifted you in some ways that, are, that man, they just really resonate and you, you find that you really resonate and you're able to model very similarly maybe to the way Christ did in certain areas. Think about that because you can teach others in the body who struggle with that. And I want you to be thinking about how you can use that to grow others in the fullness of Christ. At the same time, I want you to think about the aspects we talk about today, aspects that you struggle with where your life does not reflect the life of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus. And I want you to wrestle with that and then look for people in the church who do well in those areas so you can go and learn from them and say, hey, help me learn and help me grow in these aspects because you model these well. For those of you who aren't Christians, I really want you to just sit back today and listen and learn about the life of Jesus. Jesus was a historical figure. He actually lived. He died. He rose again. There is no tomb where we go to see Jesus like other religious leaders. He is risen, but he's an historical figure, and the Bible gives a vivid account of his life. And I want you to sit back and really enjoy that today. Um, and, and I want to challenge you. This is going to sound counterintuitive, and y'all can email me about this later if somebody doesn't like this, but I would challenge you, don't judge Christianity through the lens of other Christians. And the reason I say that is we're all broken and sinful. That's why Jesus came and died, so he could restore us back in a relationship. Nothing we could do could earn our way back to right relationship with God, and we're still broken. Um, we still get things wrong. And so what I want you to do, though, is look closely at the life of Christ and what Scripture says about Jesus, who he was, and who he called us to be. Judge Christianity through that lens. We might get it wrong, but, but, but Jesus got it right. And what he called us to is a beautiful picture. And that's what we aspire to. That's what we should be looking at when we're determining what we think about Christianity, not how we as Christians do or don't get it right all the time. Uh, as an outline for today, just so you can know where we're going, we're going to kind of look through why, what, and how. Uh, in terms of why, we want to really look at why ministry? And Jesus gives a great example and shows us the why behind doing the work of the ministry. We'll then look at what. Jesus shows us what the work of the ministry is, and, and part of that um, is, is reconciled relationships. So we're actually going to take a little bit and look at what a right relationship with God looks like as kind of a sub-point. And then we'll look at how how Jesus did the work of the ministry so that we can look at what a full-flavored approach to doing life and ministry looks like. So with that, let me jump in first and foremost to the why. Why did Jesus do the work of the ministry? In Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6, we see that God in love predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I want to take a quick pause here and kind of give you the, the, the meta-narrative, meaning the, the full overarching storyline of Scripture. Uh, it all started, God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden back in the day, and he created them in relationship. God created 
all of mankind to have a relationship with him. But Adam and Eve, instead of obeying and worshiping God as Lord, decided to pursue their own interests and their own glory and chose to be disobedient to God, thinking that they had a better way. Now, that's true of all of us. At some point, we've all robbed glory that was due to God and sought our own interests and our own glory. So that act of stealing glory that's due to God has broken our relationship with God. And there's nothing we can do to restore it because there's no way we can obtain perfection and restore that. But in God's great grace and great love for us, he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life we could never live to die in place of us and to receive the full wrath that our sin deserves upon himself. He then was buried and rose again, conquering death and sin. And that death creating a means through which we could be reconciled to God. So he took the full wrath upon himself so we wouldn't have to receive that wrath and so that we could be reconciled into relationship with God. So God redeems us and restores us through the work of Jesus. Now, Jesus, he didn't wanna go to the cross. He didn't wanna die. Uh, we'll see later that he even prayed, Lord, please let there be another way. But if there's not, I'm more worried about your glory. So if this is how your glory needs to be proclaimed so the world can know you, then let your will be done. Jesus surrendered because he wanted to see God's glory proclaimed to all the earth. And Jesus went to the cross doing the ultimate work of the ministry on the cross for us. But it was for God's glory. Why should we do the work of the ministry? What's the why that drives our engagement in the work of the ministry? We see in 2 Corinthians 5, um, it begins with, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then it says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Um, I love this verse because it talks about how we're, we're invited in to display God's glory to the world. We get to join in the plan and the purpose that he's had from the very beginning to have his glory displayed to the world. We're invited into that great plan. Um, it's important to know, this isn't some weighty duty put upon us. Oh, go reconcile people. Go share God's glory. It's not a weighty duty that we do to earn God's favor. We've already received God's favor. This is a worshipful response because of the work he's done in our life, and we want to share it with others so they too can experience that joy that comes from the redeeming grace and being restored into right relationship with God. So we do the work of the ministry because we're invited in to display God's glory to the world around us as we share about his redeeming and saving grace. So what is the work of the ministry? Now, it's the same verse, the 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. And I'll just highlight the, the work of the ministry. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the work of the ministry is seeing other people reconciled to God. And then if we look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which are some of the verses I started with, centering in on a few key words there, the work of the ministry is the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, growing to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. So if I pull those two verses and I put them together, I think this says fairly concisely something that is worth all of us really taking to heart. The work of the ministry that we are all called to as Christians is about seeing people reconciled to God and growing in the fullness of Christ. 
That's boiled up in a nutshell, I think, a good summary of the work of the ministry for us to chew on. Um, if you want to hear more about those ideas, we did in our first few discipleship trainings a lot of work about the glory of God and work of ministry and some things. So feel free on our website, you can go and look those up and, and have a much more in-depth. You can download the notes and see lots of scripture that supports the ideas that I've just talked about in very brief summary. But if the work of the ministry is about seeing people reconciled to God, the question that then kind of comes to my mind is, well, how do we know if we're hitting the nail on the head? Like, how do we know what a right relationship, a reconciled relationship looks like? And luckily, we have Jesus who models a beautiful picture of what a right relationship with God looks like. And we see from Jesus, there's abiding, obedience, a heart for others, and a life empowered by the Spirit. And I'm going to walk through each one of those, so you'll have a chance to write those down as we go. And this is where I would highlight again, this isn't comprehensive and conclusive. There are other aspects, but, but these are some good summary points, some real good nuggets to take away that are at least at the, the core of what abiding uh, in a right relationship with God looks like. So when we think about abiding, first and foremost, we see that Jesus showed us a hunger for God was central to his right relationship, a hunger for God's word. Uh, in Luke 2, 41 and 50, there's a story where uh, Jesus' parents had gone into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Jesus was about 12 years old at the time. And when the feast was over, they had gone with their caravan traveling, thinking Jesus was with them. But about a day in, they realized he wasn't there. They went back frantically looking for Jesus, and after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, it's worth noting that in those days, uh, they didn't have uh, readily accessible um, scripture parchments and things like that. Um, and so the, the churches, um, the synagogues would actually keep the scrolls. And so if you wanted to open God's word, you would go there to the synagogue. So Jesus in his hunger at 12 years old, in his hunger to learn and know God's word, had spent three days sitting in the temple wanting to, to discuss God's word with other men who were learned and who were studying his scrolls. Um, we see Jesus was a student of God's word from an early age and he responded to pretty much every situation throughout life with God's word. He responded to temptation, to attacks, to questions, all the things that came his way, he'd respond with God's word so that he was always in accordance with God's will and God's purposes. So we see from Jesus, we should have a hunger for God's word as part of a right relationship with God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. As we look at these two verses in this idea, um, that to grow in the fullness of Christ, uh, here it says complete, but in Ephesians it said to grow in the fullness of Christ. So when you put those ideas together, the idea is for us to be full in Christ, to be complete, to be what God's intended us to be, we have to know and study God's word. If I was going to be really candid, I would say as a church, we have been blessed with a great teaching history. And, and by and large, our body is very theologically astute, meaning um, our people here know how to take God's word, the gospel, and apply it to the broken places in people's lives very well. I've heard from a number of people from other churches that have come and interacted with our church and our community groups. And I've heard on more than one occasion them say, your average community group member is more theologically astute. They know how to apply the gospel better than our 
average pastor on staff at our church. And that's a huge praise. We've had great teaching and we've learned how to apply God's word. But equally so, what I've found is because of some of the great teaching, many of our people here have never learned to study God's word. They just show up and they wait to be fed the word on Sundays and they never really study it for themselves. Um, I've heard several people talk about, they feel like if they open God's word, like they don't know how to get anything out of it. It just seems too complex and unapproachable. And, and that should never be the case for us as Christians. Uh, God's word is not intended to be opened only by those with seminary degrees to be studied and taught. Um, I've never been to seminary, and, and we're blessed. Pastor Aaron and Shane have great seminary uh, studying and training. There's much they've gained from that, but God's word is not only for them as seminary-educated men. This is for all of us. This should be a staple of our daily diet in the sense that we should all feel it's approachable and we can learn it and study it and open it for ourselves. And if you don't, there's a bunch of great resources to help. And this is an area I hope we will grow in as a church as we go forward. Um, there's the ESV study Bible, which is loaded with uh, documents and, and commentaries that explain what's being taught and explain how to read and approach it so you know what you're looking for. There are inductive study Bibles that literally teach you, here's what to look for in this particular book, and here's how to read it and study it and break it down so you can learn to study for yourself. Uh, there's the Gospel Transformation Bible, which actually shows in the commentary how to see the gospel thread throughout the whole of scripture, how it points to Jesus, even in books of the Bible Jesus' name isn't even mentioned. Um, there's uh, Greek and Hebrew study Bibles. There's, there's books uh, such as one by Howard Hendricks, uh, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, that talks about how to open and study scripture and different tactics that you can use to study scripture. There's all these resources that are there to help you learn how to open and study God's word. And if we take God's word seriously, when we read 2 Timothy and we realize all of scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may become complete, equipped for every good work, remembering Ephesians, the work of the ministry, building up of the body of Christ. We can't do that unless we're well equipped with his word. So I pray that y'all would walk away with a deep conviction that we need to become a church that really reads and studies God's word, not just showing up on Sundays to have it fed to us. We see from Jesus that there's also, in a right relationship with God, a huge commitment to prayer, Mark 1.35, he says, And rising very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In Mark 6.46, it says, After he had taken leave of them, he went up on a mountain to pray. And we see throughout Scripture that despite the fact people were constantly pressing in, asking for his time, begging for help and for him to heal them, Jesus, with all there was that he could have done, he constantly pulled away to spend time with his Father in prayer. He constantly protected time to make sure that first and foremost he had a right relationship with with God, knowing that it was out of the right relationship with God and the empowerment of the Spirit that everything else would be done. And so Jesus protected that time in prayer and had a commitment to prayer with his Father. We also see that Jesus modeled obedience. Obedience is a great indicator for what you're actually worshiping and what is actually Lord in your life. If you're worshiping God, you will seek to obey God in his will and see his glory proclaimed. Matthew 26 36 through 39, when Jesus went to them, uh, excuse me, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over and pray, and going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As I said earlier, Jesus would have loved for there to have been another way for man to be reconciled to God and for God's glory to be proclaimed. He did not want to go through the most brutal 
death ever. But he was more worried about God's glory than his will. And so as he prayed, he said, Lord, if there's another way, please. But if not, I'm willing to go to the cross. And he prayed this right before they came and arrested him and took him away to prison and crucified him. He knew what was coming, but he wanted to see God's glory proclaimed. And this was the means through which God was gonna display his great grace to the world. So Jesus models obedience. In Romans 6, 16, it says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Obedience is not, and I think where I grew up, often obedience was kind of this um, weighty thing. You had to get all the right things right, and you don't do the wrong things, and obedience was how you would earn God's favor, but I think that's a distortion. Obedience is a worshipful response for what God's already done. God sent us son to redeem and restore us, and so he gives us a chance to obey him and to show, hey, there's something greater than what I want out of this world. God's glory is greater than, than my glory, so I am willing to set aside my interests to see the Lord's glory proclaimed. Obedience is how we respond and show worship to God, and Jesus modeled that for us, even to the point of death. We also see a right relationship. Uh, Jesus shows us that a right relationship includes a heart for others. Matthew 9, 35 and 36, when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Um, if you have a love for the Lord, you will, you will genuinely grow with a heart that loves the things that he loves. And God loves people. God wants to see people redeemed and restored. So if your heart is not growing with a greater and greater love and compassion for others to see them reconciled into God, then something's missing. A right relationship with God will reflect an increasing heart that is concerned for others and has compassion on others. Now you might be thinking, man, this sounds really weighty. I don't know how I could do these things. And there's hope because uh, a right relationship with God is also um, one that displays a life empowered by the Spirit. Matthew three sixteen and 17 shows that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Um, in Luke the same account where Jesus was baptized, right on the heels of that, it says in Luke 4.1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. So the idea is that when the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit came down upon him in the form of a dove, it was the symbolic display that Jesus was empowered by the Spirit for the work of the ministry that was ahead of him. All of Jesus' future ministry was empowered by the work of the Spirit within him. Uh, and I want to, just a quick side note, because I hear this from time to time, people will say, well, Jesus was sinful, that's why he got baptized. You get baptized when you sin, and that's, and, and that's not true at all. Jesus was not baptized in response to sin. Jesus was baptized to associate with the sinners he had come to save. And it was a foreshadowing of the fact that he was gonna die, be buried, and then raise again, conquering sin and death. And that's why we celebrate baptism now, because we're now associating with Jesus and the work he did to die, be buried, and to rise again. And so, Jesus modeled that for us, uh, and now we get to represent uh, and model that as well, that association. But Jesus wasn't being baptized to uh, repent of sin. He was being baptized to associate with the sinners he came to save. 
Now, the joyful thing is not only was Jesus empowered by the Spirit for the work of the ministry, we are empowered by the Spirit for the work of the ministry God has called us to. Acts 1, 6 through 8 says that uh, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the time or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, God isn't sending us out to do work to earn his favor. God already had a plan that he wanted to accomplish, and he's inviting us into that and then empowering us with his spirit so that we can actually live that out. And in obedience, we join with him in the work he's doing so that we can see others reconciled to God. As that statement I started with uh, at the beginning of this section, the work of the ministry is about seeing people reconciled to God and growing in the fullness of Christ. We see that Jesus models a right relationship with God by showing us what it looks like to abide and to be obedient and to have a heart for others and a life empowered by the work of the ministry. But now let's kind of turn and look at what does it look like to do the work of the ministry? How did Jesus do the work of the ministry? And this is where we really get into this idea of full-flavored, thinking again back to the the initial book title, it doesn't have to taste like chicken, it doesn't have to be bland and boring. There are so many ways that we can engage in the work of the ministry, and I'm going to hit just a few of some of the the extremes or some of the, the spectrums, the diverse spectrums that Jesus operated in. First of all, we see that he engaged with people in both formal and informal settings. In Mark 1, 21 and 22, it says it was, they went to Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus used the formal opportunities. He went into the temple to teach and to make sure a right word was being taught. Uh, But he didn't wait for everyone to come into the temples. He didn't only show up on Sunday at the services, even though theirs were... Saturdays, I think. Um, He didn't only show up at the temples, though. He was engaging in a host of areas, and we see that he engaged in a lot of informal settings. One of those was at work. In Matthew 4, 18 and 19, we see that while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, hey, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They're just out working, And again, Jesus wasn't waiting in the synagogue hoping that someday they would show up. He went out to their place of work, engaged them where they were at, and invited them into what he was doing. We see in Luke 5, 27 and 28, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said, hey, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose to follow him. While they were out thinking about work, Jesus was thinking about the work of the ministry. While they were thinking about what they needed to do that day, Jesus was thinking about how they needed to meet him and how they needed to be reconciled to God that day. Jesus always had ministry on his mind. He also engaged with people in their homes. Luke 5, 29 and 32, it said, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So they were thinking about their social encounters or who knows what. Jesus was seeing all of it through the lens of ministry. 
all of it through the lens of these sinners need to meet Jesus. These Pharisees who are self-righteous and think they've heard my favor, they're missing the point. So I need to speak a word of truth to them when, when they're confronted with things that cause them to question. So he was using that as a teachable moment to work in the Pharisees as well as to reach out to these sinners and tax collectors who needed to know him. Jesus was a master at teachable moments. If there is one skill that is a church I would love all of us to learn, it is how to capitalize on teachable moments the way Jesus did. We see in Luke 11, one through two, Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. What I love about this simple little phrase, Jesus was modeling his personal intimate relationship with God in front of them. Uh, often I hear people, oh, I don't know, I'm nervous about praying in front of people. And I'm like, man, what a missed opportunity. They never get to see what your rich relationship with God looks like if you're afraid to pray in front of people. Jesus wasn't. He's out with his disciples doing who knows what and probably says, you know what? I need a time out. I need to go spend time with my father. Again, showing them that that was a special time and a protected time that he was always gonna prioritize. And as he's praying, they're seeing this and they say, you know, teach us. You, you don't know how to, how would I say this? You're never going to ask someone to teach you something if you never see that they know it. You have to model those things so people even know that there's something to ask. Like, my gosh, you can, man, you can do X. I, I've always wanted to do that. Teach me. If we hide everything in our relationship with God and we never share that with others, how would they even know to ask so that we can teach him? But Jesus was modeling that and then using those as teachable moments. Matthew 29, 9 through 14, it said, He entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because they wanted to accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, won't take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is this man than the sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. I love this because, number one, Jesus always had his radar up. This is another great teachable moment. Here he is in the synagogue, and they're wrestling through things, and they're trying to challenge him and question him, and, and, and they're wrestling through the old law. Well, the law says you can't do this, and you have to do this, and Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. It's about a right relationship with God and worshiping and obeying God, and God has a heart for people. So how dare you rescue your sheep and not be willing to save this man and help him in his time of need as his hand is withered? Jesus was using this as a great teachable moment to point them to truth. So as we look at this, we see that Jesus always had his radar up. He was always thinking about the work of the ministry. He was always seeing teachable moments where he could either care for the brokenhearted or, or confront the hardhearted or, or speak truth where there was distortion and misunderstanding. I think we should all be challenged by this. How different would it look if we all had our radar up when we're at our places of work? when we're with our kids out at the playground, when we're wherever we are and conversations come up and we hear somebody's hurting or we hear somebody spousing some idea that, that's just ridiculous, we should be bold and see those as teachable moments to speak truth. Um, I often have this conversation with community group leaders. There's a little bit of nervous, like, oh, I see this and it's a distortion and I wanna speak into it, but I'm afraid how they'll respond. And I'm like, if you read through the scriptures, Jesus didn't bat 100 either. There are people that didn't like what he had to say and they walked away discouraged or frustrated. So if Jesus didn't get them all, you're not gonna either. Don't take it as your failure. Recognize that's just part of it. Not everyone wants to hear truth and submit to God as their Lord and Savior. So we need to be bold and we need to be ready to engage people when those opportunities arrive. We see that Jesus was inclusive and exclusive, digging into some other extremes. 
inclusive. John 3, 16 and 17, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that we, uh, the world might be saved through him. Jesus came offering grace to restore any and all who would come to him, but it was to any and all who would come to him and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. So he was exclusive, and only those who acknowledge him as Lord are redeemed. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, acknowledging Jesus as Lord and surrendering our lives to him are kind of two sides of the coin. You acknowledge him, but then there has to be a surrender, a true handing over of lordship to him. We see in Matthew 19, 16 through 22, a great story where a man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep his commandments, keep the commandments. And he said to him, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all of these I have kept. So what still do I lack? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. The young man heard this and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, even Jesus, not everybody responded uh, positively to his words of truth. Now, what I find interesting about this section is this guy, by our standards, would be amazing. Like, if he showed up and was amongst us, we'd think this guy is the pillar of what, we, what it should be. I mean, he was loving and serving and giving, and all of the outward expressions towards other. he was nailing it. But he had an issue with lordship. He still wanted to be lord of his life. Um, it's interesting, in the list of commands Jesus initially gives him, he jumps straight to the love one another's. He then comes back and he says, you're missing the big one, and that's, you shall have no other gods before me. See, that guy was very rich. He had his wealth and his possessions and he wanted to continue to be Lord of his own life and he, he likes the idea of God. He didn't like God's lordship in his life. I think many of us, if we're honest, uh, I'm probably all of us come in loving the idea of God but having areas of our life where we're still struggling to submit and give God lordship over those areas and that is God's grace in sanctifying us and progressively helping us grow to see and identify and surrender those different idolatries that we carry but a reconciled relationship with God will show by a heart that is surrendering and giving full lordship to the Lord, worshiping and obeying him instead of pursuing our own idols and interests. We see from Jesus that he did ministry in a way where he was both meek, but also very bold. Um, we see that he was meek in Philippians 2, 4, and 8. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. He's incredibly meek. Here we have the God of the universe and the, the person of Jesus Christ being born, putting aside his deity and being born to walk among us as a man, even to the point of being hung on the cross for us 
to see us brought back into relation with God, to see God glorified, to see us reconciled, incredibly meek and servant-hearted. But he wasn't a pushover. He wasn't some lame Mr. Rogers character that didn't know how to get riled up. He was bold as he defended the glory of God. And we see in John 2, 13 through 16, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. They had turned the place that was supposed to be to worship into a place of commerce. Jesus, enraged and defending the glory of God, makes a whip out of cords, and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins uh, of the money changers. He overturned the tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus knew how to be bold, and he knew what to be bold about, defending God's glory. Um, in another accounting of that same story, he made the comment um, with sharp words, you have made this place of worship a den of robbers. So God knew when to be sharp. Jesus knew when to be sharp with his words and when to be bold. He wasn't just meek. As another example of, of gentle and sharp and how he could be both when it was appropriate, we see in Luke seven thirty six through 48, this is a longer passage, but one of the last verses I'll hit on. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and when he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, um, that's subtle phrase for, for she was a prostitute, when she learned and was reclining, uh, excuse me, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair and her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is, who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he answered saying, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owned 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, from who he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kisses, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. I love this picture because Jesus is so gentle towards this woman with such a broken heart, recognizing she needs redemption and someone to rescue her. But on the other hand, he has this self-righteous man who thinks he has done so well upholding all the laws that, that he should earn God's favor and God should look justly upon him as a great man. And, and Jesus says, man, there is no gratitude in your heart for the work I've done for you. And Jesus has a sharp word that cuts to the core, trying to break through his hard heart. Again, both of these are an act of love. It's not like Jesus was being loving to the woman and being mean to the other guy. Both of them were being addressed in an appropriate way. Out of love, God was speaking truth, but in a way that they needed to hear it. She had a broken heart that needed to be restored. If he was gonna see the kingdom of heaven, he had a hard heart that needed to be broken through. So we see that Jesus was both gentle and sharp. Now tying this all together, 
coming back to that idea of, of an abundant life, John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that you could have life and have it abundantly. Jesus wants us to have an abundant life. And I ask, are you experiencing an abundant life? Are you experiencing life to the fullest? Is your spiritual life full-flavored and rich and diverse? If you're not experiencing an abundant life, I would challenge you to study the life of Christ and to think about where your life might seem narrow compared to the breadth and the diversity with which Jesus engaged. As we think back through what we've learned today, Jesus shows us the why behind ministry. And and the reason we get involved in ministry is for God's glory. God's reconciled us through Jesus and he's invited us into the work of the ministry of reconciliation as an invitation to proclaim his glorious grace to others. Jesus also shows us what the work of the ministry is. As we said earlier, earlier, the work of the ministry is about seeing people reconciled to God and then growing in the fullness of Christ. Jesus came to give life and give it abundantly. And the work of the ministry is a chance to show that to people and to lead people to Jesus to help them grow in Jesus so they can experience that abundant life for themselves. Jesus also shows us what a right relationship with God looks like. And we see from him that it includes abiding and obedience and a heart for others and a life empowered by the Spirit. If any of these aspects are missing, something's off. Like if you tell me, man, I love the Lord and I am walking with him and I have a great relationship. I read his Bible every day, but there's no obedience. Something's missing. If, if you say you love the Lord and you're being obedient to his word, but yet you have no heart for others, I would say something is missing. These are all aspects. It needs to be full flavored. You can't just have one aspect. If you only have, uh, you know, you say you love and serve people, but you show no love for the Lord and his word, you're missing out on the full flavored abundant life that Christ really has for you. Jesus also showed us how he did the work of the ministry. He engaged people in formal and informal settings, inclusive but yet exclusive. He was meek and yet he was bold. He was gentle and sharp. He was all of these things. And our life should look something like the life of Jesus. Thinking back to the book titles, um, How to Give Your Wife All the Men She Ever Wanted, A Simple Man's Guide to Changing Your Looks. If you think about giving your wife what God would have her, you know, God raising you up to be a godly man, what he would purpose you to be, Let's say you do a great job at being meek and she sees this wonderful, gentle, meek man, but she never sees you get bold and defend God's glory for others. There's probably an aspect of who God is and who he's called you to be that is missing. Or thinking about the other book title, It Could All Taste Like Chicken, A Theology of Worship from the Perspective of Your Taste Buds. If you think you're abiding in him because you read but you're not walking in obedience, as I said, something's off. If you only engage others by inviting them to church and you're not out engaging people in the workplace and engaging them in their homes, you're missing rich opportunities to respond to the work of the ministry God's given you and to experience God as you walk in obedience, ministering to others in the contexts that Jesus has placed you. If, if you're meek and, and you, you speak the gospel but in soft ways because you're afraid you might burn a bridge and you never have a bold or a sharp word of truth when a broken, or excuse me, a hard-hearted person is there, you're probably missing some aspects and need to grow in boldness. Or for some of you, you've always got a sharp word and a bold opinion, but you have no idea what gentleness looks like. You need to grow in the fullness of Christ and you need to grow so you experience a more full-flavored life. In the world of community groups, I often have this dialogue, and I talked about this a little bit earlier, but often somebody will come forward and say, you know, I'm in a community group, and it just doesn't feel very life-giving. 
And so often I'll start to ask, well, what does it look like? And I'll say, well, you know, we get to every, every Tuesday night, we meet at this time to this time, and we do this, and then we do this, and we do this. And I'm like, okay, like, is that what you do every time? Yeah, I mean, that, that's community group, right? I'm like, ah, those are some aspects of biblical community, but there's so much more. And if you're always doing the same thing, it's, it's like only using one of your 10,000 taste buds. And yeah, everything's going to start to taste bland. You've got a ton of taste buds. And when we think about biblical community and our, our spiritual walks, there are a host of ways to engage in the study of God's word. If every single community group, all you do is talk about application questions from the sermon and you never open up and study together, or you never on your own are studying God's word, it's going to feel bland. If you only engage in prayer in 10 little minutes at the end and, and it always looks the same, something's going to start to feel bland and like boiled flavorless chicken. You, you need to experience diversity. The, 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 I would say the model template we put out for community groups is a starting point, not a final destination. It is a great place to get you started and to give you a foot up on experiencing biblical community, but there are a host of ways and inevitably the most fruitful and vital community groups I see are those that have a lot of diversity and variety. They meet weekly and some weeks they spend the entire time in study. Some weeks they spend the entire time praying for one another. Some weeks they break into small groups. Sometimes it's all together. And most weeks it's not just on Tuesday nights. There are people from the community group getting together and they're going and doing service. Or maybe they're having uh, additional discipleship and Bible study. Or maybe they're going on a fun night where they're going and meeting up at the pub and inviting friends from work to have fruitful dialogue that might even turn into gospel opportunities. You see these full-fledged dynamic communities. And I know it's tough in the busy lives we lead, but I'm just getting to the point that if all you experience is biblical community or your spiritual life in a narrow spectrum, it's probably going to start to taste bland, and that's not the abundant, full-flavored, fruitful life Christ wants for you. So in closing, let me go back and look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, just the first few verses, or excuse me, a few verses out of that chunk. But as a reminder, the work of the ministry that we are all called to and called to be equipped to do is for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Church, my prayer is that we would not be a bland church that we would not be a group of believers that live bland spiritual lives. My prayer is that we would live full-flavored, dynamic, exciting lives, the abundant lives Christ has come to give us, and that we would be ministering to one another, challenging one another, and growing in the fullness of Christ so that we would all experience the abundant life he offered and so that we could, that we could model an abundant life to others and invite them into a rich and exciting work of God's reconciling work that he offers them. That's my prayer for us. At this point, we're going to transition to a call to response, giving y'all a chance to respond in worship. The band's going to come up behind me in a moment and lead in some songs. For the uh, folks that are passing offering, if you would go ahead and grab the buckets and begin to pass those. For the offering, which we'll begin with, um, this is a chance for those that call this church home to respond in worship, acknowledging that everything we have is a gift from God, and that as Lord of our life, we are honoring him and giving the first fruits of what he's given us back to him for the furthering of his gospel. If you're a guest with us today, or a non-believer, know that there is no expectation for you to give. If you would like to, you're welcome, but this is really something for those that call this church home as an act of worship. While they're passing the buckets, I want to put up some questions on the slides that'll be questions that you can chew on and take to your community groups. 
Question number one, would you describe your spiritual life as full-flavored or bland like unseasoned chicken? How is God calling you to grow in the fullness of Christ? And think back through those different dynamics. Think about the areas that you realize, man, these aren't present. That's not true of me at all. And maybe those are areas God's calling you to grow in. What would the work of the ministry look like that God is calling you to? Is there an area of ministry that maybe he's calling you to grow in? How is God calling you to help others grow in the fullness of Christ? Again, there are going to be some areas that you really resonate with and others that you don't. And so how are you going to help one another grow in those areas? Where does your life and ministry look like the life and ministry of Jesus? And where do your life and ministry not look like the life and ministry of, excuse me, of Jesus so that you can learn from others? Um, all of those questions, if you didn't have time to write them down, they will be posted with the sermon on our website later tonight or tomorrow morning. Uh, so you can get those there as you prepare for community groups. Um, so with that, um, next we're going to transition into a little bit of time of communion. Communion is a time where, as believers, we get to respond to the work that God's done by remembering his death on the cross. The bread we take is representative of his body that was broken, and the, the juice or the wine that it's dipped in represents the blood that was shed as, as Jesus's payment for our sins so that we could be reconciled in a right relationship with God. Now, this is something that we invite all believers to, even if you're not a member of this church. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to come forward and to join us in communion. If you're not a believer, we would ask you to abstain. This is a, a practice for those that are worshiping Jesus as Lord and who are Christians. However, this is an invitation for you. Uh, remember, Jesus is inclusive. He would love to see everyone reconciled into right relationship with God. And so if you're feeling that tug and you want to today acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and as payment for your sin and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, you are welcome to come forward as your first act of worship as a new Christian and to take communion with us. So if you would go ahead and stand, I'm gonna pray and then following prayer, as you feel led, you can come forward and take communion. So please stand and I'll pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word and to study about you and to learn about the incredibly diverse ways that Jesus modeled ministry for us. And I pray that we would grow in that and that we would become more, more well-rounded, full-flavored Christians, that we would experience the fullness of life that Jesus came to offer as we walk in obedience to you, engaging in the work of the ministry to build one another up in love. We pray, Lord, that you would just be gracious as we enter this time of worship and that it would be a rich time abiding with you and honoring your name. Amen.